Good morning. Let's read John 7, 53 through chapter 8, 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The conversation right now um, that's being had a lot among a lot of Christian leaders, Christian pastors about what's being called the Christian Mind Project. Uh, and I think it's coming up recently because people are realizing like how unformed Christian minds are. Do we really think or are we able to think biblically formed by the Bible uh, about life, about the world, or, or do we actually take most of our cues from kind of a secular understanding of the world with a Christian symbol or label here and there? Uh, so there's a, a lot of talk about this. Do we know the Bible? Are we shaped by the Bible? Is, uh, is the Bible, is a biblical worldview really what's forming our understanding of the world? And I'm grateful to be a part of that. I want Christ's covenant to be a part of this, to, to be the kind of church that thinks biblically, that understands the world uh, through the shape that the Bible gives us. Uh, for this reason, I'm grateful for uh, other churches that are obviously committed to the same thing. I'm grateful for Christian schools that are committed to training up uh, minds in a biblical worldview sense. But I, I was thinking about this this week uh, in light of this passage and this is a really great passage. There, there is so much going on here uh, that really helps us think about uh, a lot of the things that are happening right now in public conversation or public discourse. It brings up the issue of gender. It brings up the issue of oppressor and oppressed. It brings up the issue of marriage. It brings up the issue of self-righteousness. Um, it actually even helps us think through the nature of the Bible itself. Um, and so I think I wanna go to a lot of different places today. There's, there's more than I can really get to, but I, I wanna begin there. The question of the Bible. Now, if you notice in your Bibles, there might be a little note. I hope you have your Bible in front of you. If you have it, look down and there's a little note that says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Do you see that? Anybody have that in your Bibles? Some nods, yeah? You know what I'm talking about? So what does that mean? What is that? Um, how do we understand what that means? And, and I think that this is, it actually brings up a really great point. And I have to be careful here 
because I'm tempted, I'll be tempted to just spend the whole sermon on this idea, but it, it, it brings up this idea of the inspiration of scripture. What is the Bible? How do we understand what the Bible is? And when we talk about what Christians call the inspiration of scripture, what we mean by that is this, that we believe the Bible was written by human authors. So for example, the gospel of John, uh, that's the gospel according to John. In fact, a lot of your titles may even say that. So we believe that John, a human author, wrote this, but as he was writing this, when he wrote the manuscript of this text, he was being led along by the Holy Spirit in such a way that these words come to us with the same kind of authority as if God himself were teaching them to us. In fact, a lot of times when we read the Bible here, we will end and the reader of the Bible text will say, this is the word of the Lord. And we'll say, thanks be to God. We didn't do that today. And that was an intentional move because we, this is a, a, a part of our text where the inspiration of it is questioned because the earliest manuscripts that we have, the earliest copies of John that we have actually don't include this passage. This passage doesn't show up in the Gospel of John until about the 400s, the fifth century. Now, there's a, again, there's a lot of little paths we could go down right now. Um, I, I'd love to talk to you about biblical inspiration and this other huge uh, topic of canonization. Why are some of the books of the Bible in the Bible and why did those books get in the Bible and other books not in the Bible? So those are big issues. But again, well, I don't have time to get to that today, but, but I wanna point to you some resources, give you some principles, and then we'll jump back into the text. The first resource, if you've asked these questions, and I hope that you have, you, you, you can't have a formed Christian mind if you don't have a lot of confidence that the Bible is the word of the Lord. So if you have asked some of these questions and you want a great resource on this, last January, Bruce Ware came and he gave a, a lecture. He gave a Covenant Institute class on the inspiration of scripture. We, we called it, Can We Trust the Bible? And, and actually it's, it's right on our webpage. If you're interested, just go to the resources tab at Christ Covenant. It's about a three hour event uh, where he really walks us through what we are talking about when we talk about the inspiration of scripture. That little short definition that I gave that the the, the, Holy, the word of God coming through the Holy Spirit compatible with the writing of these biblical authors is, is delivering us the counsel of God's word. Uh, he takes that little definition and expands upon it for three hours. So it's a very, very helpful resource. Now, when we did that, so many of you came and you asked a bunch of questions about canonization. There's, those are two different things, actually. Inspiration is how the Bible was produced. Canonization is you know, why we think that these are the inspired books and maybe some other things that were in around the same time aren't inspired. You had so many questions about canonization that next January, we're gonna bring in the, the, the best scholar I know to talk about biblical, and when I say I know, I don't really know, it's not like we vacation together, but like the best scholar that I know of to talk about canonization, Michael Kruger, he's gonna come and do a talk on canonization. That's January 22nd, 2023. Uh, now, if you're like, well, I can't wait for January, Jason. Um, I do want you to mark that because it's gonna be an awesome event. Um, but I've got uh, two other resources for you that you can buy today. Uh, the first is, this is 
a, a little book I give out to people that ask this question. I think it's a really helpful book. Sinclair Ferguson, From the Mouth of God. If you have questions about the inspiration of Scripture, so again, that's the, the first doctrine that Bruce Ware talked about. You can watch the three-hour video that Bruce Ware did. You can read this book. And that'll answer a lot of your questions about the inspiration of Scripture, From the Mouth of God by Sinclair Ferguson. Great little book. The other one on the canonization of Scripture, Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. Okay, it's a little bit bigger, but it's a really interesting, fascinating, and very good book, very well put together. Um, I would also highly recommend this book. And again, Kruger himself will be here in January. Uh, and then I'm also excited, right after Kruger comes, like two weeks later, D.A. Carson is gonna be preaching for us. And Carson is another amazing New Testament scholar who I'm actually kind of taking a lot of his notes on this particular text today. So if I don't answer your questions, Kruger doesn't answer your questions, you can ask Carson next year. So those are some resources. All right. Another, before we kind of go on though, I do want to just kind of talk about some guiding principles, how we understand the Bible. We're talking about the Word of God. First, and I just want to say unapologetically that we have a high view of Scripture. We believe in biblical inspiration. We believe that the Bible comes to us with authority. We believe that God speaks through His Word. Number two, we don't apologize for the Bible. I'll be the first to tell you, there are some weird things that you read in Scripture. There are some parts of the Bible that I've really had to think deeply about. There are some parts of the Bible that I'm still confused over. They don't have per perfect certainty over. Um, and, but I want to say this. It's actually those parts of the Bible that give me confidence that I'm probably hearing from God and not just from some figment of my imagination. I'm not just forming God in some image that I like but that God himself is actually speaking me and testing me and, and making me understand his way that is above my way. So we, we don't apologize uh, for the Bible. We don't avoid uh, unpopular sections. Number three is we do believe that it is the word of God that gives shape to our lives. And, and, and the more we believe in the word of God and trust the word of God, the more shape, the more God-like shape our lives will have. The less we believe and trust the word of God, the less God-like shape our lives will have. And, and here's the thing, that has always happened. Creation narrative, God created the world and then what did he do? He started speaking into his creation in order to form his creation. And you know what God's doing right now? He's doing the same thing. That's when we gather to worship, we gather to hear the word of God, we read our Bibles, it's, it's God himself speaking into his creation in order to form his creation and make it right. And then third, and then fourth, and finally, we believe that God, again, is intricately tied to his word. The Bible talks about this in so many different ways. Um, that God has revealed himself. He has spoken, he has manifest, made himself known in his word. Even when we begin to read it, the gospel of John, this, how does the whole gospel of John begin? It's, it's likening Jesus the second person of the Trinity who came as a man who lived on earth, but it's likening him to the word of God. God is giving us revelation. He is intricately tied to his word. Now, again, there's a lot more I could say about all of this. Canonization, inspiration, how we understand the authority of God's word. But I wanna move on. This passage, what do we do with it? As I said, it doesn't, 
meet the gold standard of canonization. We didn't say this is the word of the Lord. The, the earliest manuscripts don't include it. So we wouldn't, in, we wouldn't treat this with the same kind of weight as we would other parts of scripture, the rest of scripture. Um, we, would, we would do what we're doing today. We would kind of treat it with some caution. We wouldn't have this passage shape uh, a formational doctrine that we hold to or believe, right? Because it doesn't have the same kind of weight. But with that said, I do believe, most scholars believe, that this is a real account from the life of Jesus. Most scholars believe that this is something that actually happened. In fact, from the research that I did, and there's a lot out there, I, most scholars believe that Luke, the gospel writer Luke, actually wrote this passage and you say, well, why isn't it in Luke then? Like, why didn't Luke include his gospel? Well, in some copies of the gospel of Luke, some of the early copies of the gospel of Luke, it is included after Luke 21. In other copies of the gospel of John, it's included after John 21 or a, a different part in John chapter seven. Likely what happened, and this is, there's a lot of scholarship out there. So this is the Jason D's hypothesis. But I think what happened is Luke was known to be a ferocious interviewer, right? He, in order to compose his gospel, he interviewed so many people. And of course, John was, I'm sure, one of the folks that he sat down with and said, okay, tell me about Jesus, give me the life of Jesus. And I think Luke recorded this story that John would tell about Jesus. And I think that people knew that it was John's story. So this account that Luke wrote after interviewing John, was attached to John's story. I also think that this is when this happened, right? So the, the accounting of it, the, the chronology of it, I actually think is right. And the other thing I would say here is it's very consistent with what we do read about Jesus from passages of the Bible that we ha that, that have more authority, that we believe are inspired, that that are rightly included in the canon. So it reflects or it reinforces so many things that are consistent in the ministry of Jesus. So a few things. First, a note on the oppressed. The action picks up. If you remember last week, Jesus is in Jerusalem, the Feast of Booths. He's in Jerusalem, he's teaching in the temple. Now, whenever Jesus goes to Jerusalem, things happen, a crowd, always gathers around. It's always a little exciting. And the Pharisees hate Jesus. They hate what he has to say. So he's teaching there in Jerusalem. And if you remember how the action ended last week, the Pharisees had sent these guards to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't get him. When the guards went to go hear Jesus, they were so taken by what he had to say that they themselves sort of became believers. They go back to the Pharisees and says, man, you gotta listen to this guy, he's incredible. And the Pharisees are furious. And if you remember the end of last week's passage, Nicodemus says, well, let's, let's give the guy a hearing. Let's, let's try to hear him out. And of course, the Pharisees are even more furious. So he's teaching there in Jerusalem and the Pharisees, they're trying to lay a trap for him. We, we, we've got to get him to say something that'll incriminate him. We've got to turn the hearts of these people away from him. Everybody's listening to him and they become believers. They start to think that he's the Messiah. And so they figure out this trap. They, they find this woman who's literally, as the Bible says here, caught in adultery, which, which, which literally means it's early in the morning. I mean, you can see the scene. This woman, somebody found out, she is being dragged from a house where she had been 
caught in this crime and taken straight to the temple. I mean, this is a bad scene. This is a humiliating scene like no other for her. From straight from the bedroom to this very public place of shame. But this speaks to something. This speaks to something that I think is very hard, is very near to the heart of Jesus, very near to the ministry of Jesus. It speaks to the person who is oppressed. The woman, if you notice, is brought to Jesus alone. It doesn't say a couple caught in adultery, a woman caught in adultery. Now, adultery is not a one-man show or a one-woman show. That there had to be a man at fault here. And in the case of adultery in the Old Testament, according to the very law that these Pharisees are trying to prosecute this woman against, both parties in the case of adultery were to be put to death. Leviticus 20.10 says, if a man commits adultery with a wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Leviticus or Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now this law shows the seriousness of marriage. That marriage is a lifelong covenant created by God to be sacred between a man and a woman, a covenant that should not be messed with, it should not be treated in a callous or irresponsible way. It is a big deal. And to break it, to do evil against this covenant is an evil thing. It's a serious law. But there's only a woman here. There's not a man. No man was dragged out of bed. No man was humiliated before the crowd. This age this first century age in Jerusalem, not unlike any other age, was full of people who faced oppression, people who were belittled, people who were treated with no dignity, with no worth. In first century Judea, it was the foreigners. It was women like this woman. It was the poor. It was the irreligious. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, if you've recognized this in the ministry of Jesus, it's always these people. It's always the oppressed. It's always the downcast. It's always the outcast that Jesus goes to, that he notices, that he engages, and these people are drawn to him. It's usually, not always, but it's usually the powerful people, the religious people, the wealthy people that don't love him, that despise him. He's always challenging their structure. He's always challenging their view of the world. But he always gives dignity. He always gives dignity to the weak. And I just want you to hear this. This is the Christian ethic. This is the heart of our Lord. And this is so unlike the ethic of the world in this day and in this day. We live in a world today with abundant self-centeredness and abundant self-righteousness. In our culture, it is easy to make assumptions about people that will lift you up 
right? Self-centeredness, ultimately what that means is I am more important than anyone else. Self-righteousness, ultimately what that means is I am better than anyone else. We live in a culture with rampant self-centeredness and self-righteousness. And it's easy in an age like this to make assumptions about people that have certain jobs that can help you out. I need to get close to this person. I need to be kind to this person. I need to notice this person. But somebody has a different kind of job. Somebody has a job that could never really advance you, never really make you feel better or more in control, to totally ignore them. It's easy to make assumptions about people that, uh, you know, you can't engage with. You know, it's, it's one of the things that's interesting about America, <laughs> 95% of us can only speak one language, yet many people assume that people that can't speak English are not as smart as we are. That's a very self-centered assumption. It's a very un-Christ-like assumption. But we do this all the time. We make assumptions about different races. People make assumptions about people from rural America. People in rural America make assumptions about people in urban America. And I just want you to hear this. Everyone is doing this. <laughs> Everyone is doing this. Our little tribes, we feel so good about ourselves. We think our way is the best way. Our way is the right way. I am more important than everyone else. I am better than else. And everyone without the grace of God does this. But the Christian ethic, the Christian ethic, the way of Christ is so radically different. Here is our Lord. He left heaven. Just think about that. Jesus was in heaven. Jesus was sitting on the throne of the Father with a myriad of angels around him. If one angel were to show up right here and now and manifest himself before us, we'd all fall to our faces and worship the angel. That's how powerful an angel is. And yet Jesus, on the throne room, in the throne room of heaven, surrounded by myriads of angels saying, worthy are you, glorious are you, powerful are you, great are you. He left that. Jesus left perfect fellowship with his father, perfect union with God the Father. Jesus left that. Jesus left all comfort and all reward to come here to earth, not just to come to earth, to live a very humble life on earth, as the old catechism says, to endure all the miseries of this life. We don't really understand. This, this is a, a doctrine of a theology called the condescension of Christ. What does it mean that Christ has condescended to us? The doctrine of the condescension of Jesus. We don't talk about that enough. What is the humility of Jesus that he would condescend to become like us. We've never seen humility like this. The world has never seen humility like this. Jesus left heaven's throne to become a man, to face temptation, to face hunger and fear and cold and everything. He came to face all of it. So Jesus isn't so concerned. If that's true of Jesus, if he is so humble, He's not so concerned with what the Pharisees have to say about him. <laughs> Jesus never went home and said, hey, the ruler noticed me. I, you'll never believe who I got to talk to today. Jesus is not concerned with those people. He's not trying to go up. He's trying to go down. 
And therefore, the people that Jesus notices are people like the children. People like the foreigner who's left the foreign place where everything was comfortable to go to a place where everything was strange. And like this woman caught in adultery, he, he notices these people. He gives dignity to the weak, to the outcast, to the oppressed. He is making his way down the staircase of humility. And he sees dignity in every human life. Here's the question, do you? Do you? Is this your ethic? Is this really your Lord? As Greg Gilbert said one time, do you pass Jesus on your way up the stairway of humility as he's making his way down? Or are you following him? Are you noticing the oppressed, the outcast? Are you more concerned with people recognizing you? Or are you the person that recognizes others? Now, with all this in mind, we find ourselves in a very interesting moment in the postmodern age that we live in. Some of you all have heard me talk about this before. <clears throat> but you know how shows like uh, The Simpsons or South Park, they kind of poke fun at all religions, but they really poke at Christianity, right? They're like really disrespectful toward Christianity. And the reason is, it's, it's a really helpful kind of paradigm to think through. Secular humanism, this postmodern era that we find ourselves in, is the disrespectful child of Western Christianity, okay? That's gonna be a helpful paradigm. You have to think about it this afternoon. But secular humanism is the disrespectful child of Western Christianity. And what I mean by that is, I know none of your children, but oftentimes children will treat their parents, their own parents, worse than they'll treat any other adult, right? Children will be incredibly disrespectful to their own parents. They'll scream and yell and say things like, you're the worst dad ever. You're the worst parent ever to their own parents. Now they would never do that to another adult out there. Incredibly disrespectful to their own parents. That's the way children are. Again, I don't know if you're children. I don't know if you have ever done that to your parents. But that happens out there. People are disrespectful to their parents. And like that, children will take the very ethics that their parents taught them and then criticize their parents with those same ethics, right? It's the disrespectful children. That's, it's the disrespectful children syndrome. Western secularism really has adopted the ethics of Western Christianity and is now the disrespectful child. It, it's, it's, it's a new era of philosophy or new era of thought that is disrespectful to Western Christianity in the same way that a child is disrespectful to his parent or his or parent. Um, so with that said, what am, I, what am I getting at here? Christianity taught the world, Jesus taught the world to show dignity to the outcast, right? That, that comes from Jesus. Jesus is the one who showed dignity to the outcast. He was the one that honored victims. And so Christians throughout history have started orphanages. Christians throughout history have started hospitals and schools. It was Christians that led the abolitionist movement. It was Christians that led the civil rights movement. 
But now in post-modernity, the secular humanism of today has taken, has taken the ethic of honoring the victim or showing victim or showing dignity to the outcast, and it has made victimhood itself a point of self-righteousness. To where now we kind of find our righteousness in by being a victim, how big of a victim we are. One group will say to the other, I'm more important than you. I'm self-centeredness. I'm more important than you because I've suffered more. Or one group will say to the other, I'm better self-righteousness than you because I've suffered more. So it's taken this ethic of honoring the victim and it's turned it into another form of self-centeredness and self-righteousness. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not what Jesus is doing here. The way of, that is, the way, that is just another form of pride. It's just another form of self-centeredness and self-righteousness. The way of Jesus is always the way of humility. He came down from heaven. He became a human. He endured this humble life. If you understand the atonement, he endured the justice of God. He endured our hell. To quote the old hymn, he took my sins, my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. So Jesus dignifies this woman. He, he always dignifies. He always notices the outcast and the sinner, but he doesn't change the law. He never makes light of what she does. He certainly doesn't make it a point of pride for her. Which brings me to the second point. I think this is a really important point, which is a note on the law. Jesus helps us to rightly understand the law. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus here. Now, on the one side, they kind of knew how Jesus treated people, right? They may have heard about his interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, that he was very kind to her and showed her grace. This woman had been married five times. They may have heard about the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says things like, Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers. They know this about Jesus. They know, they've heard about his grace. But at the same time, the law was clear. If someone was caught in adultery in order to purge the evil out of the midst of the people, there had to be a consequence. So what was Jesus going to do? It's a beautiful trap. They've got him. If he says, let her go free, then he doesn't care about the law. If he says, then stoner, then where's all this mercy? Where's all this grace? So what did Jesus do? I mean, I can see the moment. There they are at the temple. This woman's been dragged out of bed. She's all there in the crowd standing around. What are you gonna do, Jesus? You know what the law says. And you know what he does? This is one of the things I love about the Bible. Jesus does the last thing. If I was writing this story, this would be the very last thing that I would ever write. In this moment, this tense moment where he has the crowd, everybody's, everybody's looking at him. He squats down and he just starts to scribble in the dust. If you're reading this story, like if, if, if you've read any stories before, if you're used to literature at all, like you're like, what is that? What is that? What is this where the protagonist squats down and starts to scribble in the dust? C.S. Lewis wrote of this passage. He said, look, I've read a lot of ancient literature and I know for certain that the New Testament gospels are not myth. And he's like, the reason I know that is there's all these weird details in them, just like this. 
He's like, what is this whole thing with Jesus scribbling in the dust? Why would anyone include that? What, what point does it make? It doesn't, it doesn't advance the story. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us any doctrine. It's just the detail of something that must have happened. Why else would it be included? What is Jesus doing here? What's the dust scribbling all about? And a lot of people have speculated, we started writing down this. That doesn't say that. The Bible just said that Jesus just started scribbling. And I think what Jesus is doing in this moment, and I think, we, I think I can say this with some certainty because of what happens. I think what he's doing is he's letting the moment set in. He's hitting pause. He starts scribbling in the dirt. He lets the people actually have eyes to see what they are doing. They didn't care about this woman. They didn't even care about the law. As we already said, they're kind of breaking the law. The law doesn't say just bring one party to account in the case of adultery. The law clearly says bring both parties to account in the case of adultery. But they don't care about the law. The Old Testament also gave people a right to a fair trial. It wasn't mob, it wasn't ruled by mob, it was an orderly society. Leviticus 19 gives people uh, a right to a trial with no partiality, fairness. Deuteronomy 19 says that every fact must be established by two or three witnesses that can then be cross-examined. Don't you see what Jesus is doing? He's letting the moment sink in. He's letting them see what's really happening. The Pharisees didn't care about the law. They just cared about power. They just wanted to get rid of Jesus. And so they were willing to break the law in order to break Jesus and show no concern, no regard for this soul, this human woman. Why does Jesus scribble? I think he's just giving them time to see what is going on, what was really going on on. Don't misinterpret this passage. Jesus loves the law. That, that is true throughout his whole ministry because the law is beautiful. It's what gives shape to our life. God speaks to us through his word, through his law. It's a gift of grace. It forms us. We can know his beauty. We can know his order. We can know his way. And there is joy in obedience to the law. The law has never been the problem. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I love the law. I want to obey the law. I want to live my life by the law. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. The law is not the problem. It's how we administer the law that's the problem. Is the law something that we administer to feel good about ourselves, to show how powerful we are? Or do we see the law as a gift from God do we see the law as God's grace? Do, do we administer the law because we love God and we love others and we see God's beauty? Do we, minister, do we administer the law from a place of God-loving grace or a place of self-loving self-righteousness? You need to ask yourself that question. If you have any spiritual authority, is that how we administer the law as elders? Is that how we shepherd our folks? Is, are we just trying to like hold you guys to obedience? Because I don't want Christ coming to be known as one of those sinful churches. Or do we love you? And we see that God has given us grace and his law. Is that how you parent? You just want an obedient child so they'll quit annoying you? Just obey me? 
be quiet kid? Or do you want to, your kid to see the beauty of God's order, God's design? Is that how you're a friend? Is that how you're a friend? When you bring correction to one another? Does everybody know you as like the hammer? It's not a great thing to be known as. Or do they know you as, you know what? He loves the law. How do you administer the law? Do you administer the law from a place of God-loving grace or a place of self-loving self-righteousness? Jesus gets down and scribbles. <laughs> he wants him to see the moment. He wants him to see what's really going on. Now, eventually the Pharisees can't stand it. He's winning again. And so they press him. What are we to do, Jesus? What are we to do with this woman? And he famously says, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, I think this is a misunderstood passage. Jesus is not saying here that you have to be completely innocent to administer the law, right? To bring the law of God to bear. If that were the case, then we could never administer the law. We could never bring the law of God to bear in any situation here. And what he is saying here is he's saying, look at this moment. He'd given them time to see what they were doing. Look at this moment. Who of you is innocent of the law right now? Don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see how many laws you have broken to create this, this scene? Don't you see that you're sinning right now? Let him who is, who is guiltless before God right now cast the first stone. And when he says that, the people's eyes are opened and they see it. And they start to walk away. How do you administer the law? Is it from a place of grace or love? Or is it from a place of self-righteousness? Do you move people along, giving people a vision for obedience to God and how beautiful it is and how right it is? Or do you just shame them and scare them? Now, now there is a use <laughs> of fear and shame, right? Jonathan Edwards talks about this as common grace, or common virtue rather, and it's common grace. There are things that you haven't done because you were ashamed to do it or you were afraid of the consequences to have done it, right? And the fact, you were, you were motivated from just fear, but you didn't do it, and the fact that you didn't do it is a good thing. That that shame or fear actually protected you from making a fool of yourself, for entering into even a greater sin. But I just want you to hear this. Fear and shame does, does nothing, it speaks nothing to your heart. And I had a professor one time that said, if the only thing that's keeping you from a sin is the opportunity to sin or the consequences of that sin, then what does that say about your heart? And what it says is, you don't really love God. You, you love sin, you, you, you love your own way. You don't really, you haven't really seen the beauty of God. So Edward says that fear and shame, they have their place. They, they create a common virtue that's actually good, but it's not true virtue. It doesn't really align us with God. It doesn't really lead us into worship. Now true virtue happens. You're, you're truly good 
when you obey, when you, when you follow the law because you love the law, when you tell the truth, not just because you're afraid of getting caught in a lie or you're ashamed to be called a liar, but you tell the truth because you love the truth, because truth is from God. When you're committed to your marriage and you don't commit adultery, not just because you're afraid of getting caught or, or fearful that you know, maybe your wife or husband will leave you if you do this thing. No, but because you love God and you love his design and you love this covenant that he's created. How do you obey the law? Have you really seen the beauty of God? Have you really seen true righteousness? How do you understand the law? Is it about you lifting yourself up or is it about God? Do we obey the law because we love ourselves and we want to suppress lawlessness? Or do we obey the law because we love God and want to see his glory known? The law is never the problem. It's how we administer the law. And this will change everything. We'll still administer the law, right? But we will administer the law from something and not just for something. And this leads me to my final note. But before we go there, there's a little note in the text that's fascinating. And I almost made it its own point, but I thought we may not have time, but let me just give it as a sub-point. It's a note on age. It's interesting in the text, when Jesus says, let him who's without sin, let, let him cast the first stone, they all start to walk away. And you know what it says? It says, the older one's left first. The older one's left first. That's a good note. That's a really good note for this church, right? I love this church. We're really young. We're really cool, but we're not old. You're young, you're cool, you're happy, but you're not old. And there's something about that. And, I, and I'm not that old, right? I mean, I'm still a millennial. I'm one of y'all, I'm cool, you know. <laughs> so, I, you know, millennials officially start January 1st, 1982. My birthday is January 26th, 1982. So I'm only 26 days in, but I'm in. I'm not one of those lame Gen Xers, you know. The older one's left first. There's something about age. It helps you to see what is really going on. It helps you to see what is true. I think that's a good word to some of us that are young. The younger ones were still around. They were like, no, she's been caught in adultery. We gotta put her to death. Finally, they walked away too. Let's just learn from this. There's wisdom and those of you, in fact, I want to say to those of you who are older among us, people always come here and they say, oh, there's a lot of young people here. I say, well, yeah, well, don't, we, stick around. Like, this is the church is for you. If you're visiting today and you're like north of 35, please stick around. Like, we need you. So finally, a note on grace. Verse 10 and 11, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. And here Jesus, oh, he really unlocks this for us. He unlocks the good news of the gospel. He shows us how to approach the law, how to obey the law, how to administer the law, how to follow the law. 
You can either follow the law for something or you can follow the law from something. I want you to hear that. You can either the law, follow the law for something or you can follow the law from something. You can either follow the law for justification, to justify yourselves. And this is any law. You're, people are always having to prove themselves, to show I've done this. I should be accepted now. I have obeyed the thing and you have not. And if you follow the law for something, you'll always be self-righteous because you're, you're proving your righteousness. Why else are you doing all this work? You'll always be self-centered because you've done all these things and they have not and they deserve the punishment that they're getting. You'll always be focused on yourselves. You'll always forget about the other. You'll always be making your way up the staircase to get noticed, to be praised. Because why else are you doing all this stuff? I'm following this for this. Or you can follow the law from something. And this is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus can come to her and come to you and say, I don't condemn you. And if that's happened, I don't condemn you. If God has come to you and said, I don't condemn you, I don't condemn you. If you follow off from something, from a place of God's mercy, from a place of knowing God, from a place of being loved by God, if that's how you administer the law to others, then you will be merciful because you'll realize that you have been shown mercy. You'll be compassionate because you'll realize that God has been compassionate to you. You'll be generous because you'll see how generous God was to you. You'll be humble because you'll see how humble Christ has been before you. Are you following the law? Are you administering the law for something? Or are you following and administering the law from something, from the place of God's abundant grace? Are you following the law because you know God and believe God loves you and have experienced his love for you? Don't you see what's happening here? The woman was a sinner. Of course she was a sinner. Jesus never makes light of her sin. She did actually deserve to die. But Jesus gives her mercy. Jesus gives her mercy. Why? How? And it's because not too long after this, not too long after this scene, it would be Jesus that was being dragged through the city. It, was be, it would be Jesus that was pulled before the crowd. It would be Jesus that the official would say, what are we going to do with him? It would be Jesus that everybody yelled out, crucify him. It would be Jesus that had no advocate. It would be Jesus that was strung up on a tree. It would be Jesus that was left to die. It would be Jesus that faced his father's Wrath, if you see what's happening here, he's able to say to her, I don't condemn you because he was willing to be condemned. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned, he stood. And don't you see that you too are the woman? <laughs> you too are the person that, what if, what if you were dragged out in front of the temple? and all your shameful things were to be known. What if that was you? What if that was your scene? What if right now you're dragged in front of the whole temple and everybody said, what are we gonna do with this person? Much less the temple. What if you were to 
dragged in front of the holiness of God. What are we going to do with this person? And the truth is, for every single one of us, we would have the same fate of this woman. Condemned, 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 guilty, caught in the act. But Jesus can say to you, if you believe this good news, that he has come, he has condescended to identify with you, to take on your sin, to, to bear your sin in your place, he can say to you, he can say to you, he can say to you, just like he said to the woman, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. But from that place, hear this, church, from that place, from that place of God's grace, from that place of God's love, then he says, go and sin no more. Follow my law. See my way. Follow my way. Take these things seriously. Don't you see what you have? Don't you see what I've given you? I don't condemn you. But go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to understand the heart of Jesus. Open our eyes now, Lord. Here we stand. Many of us, Lord, coming to you, coming to your law, coming to your way for something, to feel good about ourselves, to feel righteous in some way. But Father, I pray that we would take hold of the righteousness and the grace and the mercy that is already ours in Jesus and that we would live from that and that we would administer the law to one another from that. Do this work in our church, Lord. Thank you that in Christ we can hear those words. You are not condemned. Father, I pray that from that place you would lead us in all holiness, that you would be pleased, and that you would be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake.